Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends. So thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to The New Man, Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Are you doing whatever you can to avoid rejection? When the world says no, do you give up or keep going? And are you hoping that one day you'll no longer have to take risks or do the things that scare you? Author Keith Martin Smith is here to talk about his 300 rejection letters, avoiding risk, and why no means not yet. Welcome to The New Man. Today, I'm talking with Keith Martin-Smith. He is the author of A Heart Blown Open. Keith, thanks for talking to us today. Hey, Trips. My pleasure to be here. Good deal. It's, it's good to have you on the show. We've known each other. How, how long have we known each other? Uh, probably about five years. Uh, ever since I moved here and was working for uh, Interval Institute, I ran into you kind of through those channels. And that was just your day job because you're a writer. You were, you were working on, were you working on your first book at that time? Yeah, so basically, in 2006, I just come out of a, a, of a divorce after a 12-year relationship, and uh, you know, I, I was looking to really change things up. And I had written a book-length collection of short stories. I've been trying all through my 20s to get published, and uh, I took that job just because I was still in pretty bad financial straits, and um, kind of set about figuring out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so, how many uh, rejection letters? How many rejection letters did you get for that first that first book? Well, I, but before I finally got published, I, I had passed 300 rejection letters. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm real fucking stubborn. So I think, I think there, yeah, there's, there's something to be said about stubbornness and uh, perseverance here. Um, all right. <laughs> so <laughs> you got you, say real stupid, but you know, the fact that I actually got published is just proof of something. So. <laughs> you got published. And then it seems like the next book was the next book, A Heart Blown Open. And this is the book for, for the listeners out there that are familiar with Junpo, uh, Dennis Kelly. Uh, he's been on the show several times. So this is the, you did the biography of Junpo. That's what A Heart Blown Open is, right? That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a whole look into his life and, and the kind of incredibly crazy and wild life that he's lived and how he ended up um, becoming a, a Zen master after such a wild and 
and, and crazy time of things. And it's a crazy story. And, and, and I highly recommend, I loved the book, by the way, and I highly recommend that, that everyone goes and checks it out and also check out the interview that I did with Junpo on it. But today I want to talk more about your process because you, you went through hell and back to get this book made. So it sounds like this going around this time around, did you, what was the publishing process for you? Because I think on, on, on the outside surface, we're like, oh, if you're a writer and you get published, then you're set. But that's not really what happens. <laughs> No, it's far from it. Uh, you know, the same thing happens in the music world where we, we kind of project onto onto musicians a lifestyle that doesn't really exist, and uh, definitely happens with writing. So yeah, so so you know, I got my first book published uh, in two thousand nine, and um, you know, three hundred rejection letters, and and uh, it was a huge momentous moment for me. But to date, I've made about five hundred bucks off that book, and it took me <laughs> the better part of a decade to do. So, I just heard uh, uh, I just heard Jeff Spicoli go righteous bucks. <laughs> so, so to say it wasn't for the love of the money would be a bit of an understatement. So, <laughs> so what happened with with Junko's biography was that I'd written the book. You know, I, I really was proud of the of the short stories that I got published, and I was really wanted to do something bigger. And um, you know, as I said, I was working for Interval Institute. It was coming out of a it was coming out of a divorce. It was in a lot of financial straits, and to compound things, and this is a, this is the, the spring of 2009. I uh, I had multiple sclerosis, and I ended up with a I've been diagnosed with it, I should say, and uh, and I ended up with a, with an attack in my legs in the in the early summer. So I started to go numb in my legs and, and having some trouble walking, and you know something like that will really get your attention. I, I can definitely tell you. Yeah, well, let's so, talk about that for a second because yeah, you, yeah. you've had you've had you were diagnosed with MS a, a while back, right? That's right. Yeah, I was 26. I, I started to go blind in my right eye, and, and uh, you know went through all these tests and was was given a diagnosis of MS. Okay, and so you, it was in the back of your head, but you you'd gotten to a place where the MS was it's not remission, but it was kind of at bay. Is that right? Yeah, it's like it, you, with MS, you're either kind of presenting symptoms or you're not. So it, it's a real okay. kind of sloppy diagnosis, but yeah. All right. And so now you're in the process, you're starting, the wheels are starting to turn on this book and then the MS comes in. Is that what happened? No, no. So, so the book hasn't even been offered yet. So basically, okay. yes, I, I knew Junpo just from around town and I'd seen him speak a few times and, um, and I ended up with MS symptoms in my legs and, and I really was at a crossroads and, um, I went, he flew me out to Massachusetts to meet with him for two weeks and he gave me his whole life story, which was, you know, once I got his life story, I I, re- I couldn't believe how um, comprehensive it was, all the things he'd done and seen, and just how wild it was. And when he handed me that story and said, "I think you're my guy. Do you want to write this book?" I realized that I really I, I had a choice to make. It was I couldn't write a book like this on nights and weekends while freelance writing or getting a full time job. Um, you know, I was going to have to really take a big fucking risk, mm-hmm. and and this wasn't an abstract thing for me. It was like, you know, I, I have private insurance. You know, I, I, I'm having numbness in my legs. This could go in any number of directions. I could end up in a wheelchair. I could end up incontinent or impotent. Uh, treatments are very expensive if you choose to go the, the uh, allopathic Western treatment route. And um, so I really had a hell of a choice to face. And what I decided with that was that the book needed to be written, that I was the guy to write it, and that I would do whatever it 
took, that, that I wasn't willing five years down the road to look back and say that, boy, I really wish I jumped at that chance. I wish I hadn't played it so safe. Could you articulate how you knew that it was your book to write? Because there's so many of us that when we're faced with some big decision like that, it's the resistance is going to come up. Fear is going to come up and like, whoa, wait a second. That's that doesn't fit into my comfortable life. How did you know? Like, holy shit, this is this is my book. This is my story to tell. I think when when Jupe and I talked and and I took notes, pretty comprehensive notes and recorded all the all the things he had told me. I just, I saw in my mind exactly how I was going to write the book. I, I wrote the beginning, I think the first day that, that I met with him, I, I had the beginning of the book now, and I just saw it. I saw that, like, this is the story. I, I am the perfect guy to tell the story. Mm. I understand the, the craziness of his life. I understand his teaching. Uh, I get his weird sense of humor. You know, like, I just, I really understood the man. And I thought that this story was something that really needed to be told. Um, you know, this this isn't a typical teacher. A story is a spiritual teacher. I, I mean, it's it's about as wild a story as you'll ever read. And um, yeah, it's like something out of some like Hollywood movie about some guy that's just been all over the place with drugs and running from the law. And oh, and by the way, he turns into a Zen master kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, what I said, it's like, it's like Hunter S. Thompson, except, you know, at, at 50, he decides to become a Zen master. You know, it's it's just like this kind of you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I just, I, I just, I guess I knew, to answer your question, I guess I just knew kind of intuitively. I, I, I felt, well, I was nervous and I was scared. I knew that I could do the book and I knew that I was the guy to do the book. And I had, there was no doubt there at all. Like when I really checked into the core of my being, there was no fear and there was no resistance. The the circumstances caused fear and resistance. But when I thought about if someone just handed me a pile of money and said, can you do this book? The answer was, fuck yeah, I can do this book. There was no doubt. So let's talk about that because writing and art and music, it can be very romantic and we can look at it in hindsight, but the reality is there you are at the beginning of this journey and you, your MS is, is coming on. You're starting to show signs of that in your leg. And it's like, well, wait a second. If I head down this road, I'm going to be fully committed. What did fully committed mean to you? And, and like, how would that have impacted your day-to-day life? What was it risk? Well, at risk was everything that you, you know, I was 30, how old was I, 30, 36, 37. Um, what was at risk was all the kind of normal stuff, like house, car, you know, having savings, um, you know, being being prepared should things go wrong. For, for me, it was like the risk was I had to come up with enough money to live on for two years. And I had to do it on my own. And I had to assume all that financial responsibility by myself. And I, and I knew at the end of the two years, already understanding publishing the way I do, that I basically would, chances are I would never make my money back. Wow. So even like, okay, I'm going to go put myself through the ringer for two years. And I know most likely I'm not going to make my, you know, what I'm spending to support myself to write this book. I'm not going to make it, make it back. So you didn't do it for the, for the money, obviously. Um, but I can imagine just, I can imagine most guys just being like, well, screw that. <laughs> I'm not doing it. What drove you? Was it really the story that drove you? Yeah, it was a story that drove me. And, and it was, you know, I, I think because this is the second time in my life I've been faced with, with symptoms that really brought my mortality and my, my, 
the impermanence of my existence into sharp focus. You know, it's like when, when your legs are going numb, you don't have to sit around and ruminate that one day your life is going to end. It's like, wow, something is going on. Like, I, I'm dying right now. And if that's the case, if, if it isn't some Sylvia Plath dying in the abstract sense, but I'm, if this is really going on, what the fuck am I going to do? And so for me, it was, it was, I wasn't going to wait until I'm 70 years old and then really give a hard push and write the book I wanted to write and live the life I wanted to live. It was the time is now, right now. So the MS so, was a gift. It, it kicked you in the ass to, to help you see what was really important. Yeah. And, and what I wanted was, when I went to my grave, it was like, I wanted this book and this story out there. I wanted, I wanted it told and I wanted to tell it in the best possible way that I could which is actually kind of a, a second part of the story. We can get into that in a little bit. But um, yeah, so I ended up, so I ended up, so I owned my home in Philadelphia and I sold that and uh, lived off that money. And that, that, okay. was where the, that was where the funds came from for me. Okay. And so you got a little, you got a little bit of money in there to support you for a while, but after, after you've kind of started this journey and you're on your way, what were some of the dark days like? What were you dealing with? Well, it was interesting. It was like uh, I spent about a year writing the, the the first draft. It was took me about ten months of six hours a day. I'm sorry, uh, six days a week, six to eight hours a day. And um, it, that actually, what surprised me I, in hindsight was the creative process went pretty smoothly. I, I wrote the book. I didn't have a lot of uh, hitches, and I got to the end of that nine or ten month period. And, you know, as, as we just discussed, I was highly vested in this book, emotionally, financially, practically. And so I contacted a really prominent New York City literary agency through, through some contacts I had and sent them the manuscript. And uh, about six weeks later, or eight weeks later, maybe, they rejected the manuscripts. And they rejected the manuscripts because they said... In essence, the writing wasn't good enough. We love the story. We, we, we think it's, it's, it's a timely story, but the writing has too much of a and then, and then, and then quality to it. And it's just not strong enough to make it in today's market. So, so we... Did you, uh, uh, did you take that personally? It, it devastated me. Um, yeah. I, I read that email and I was beyond the ability to even cry. I was mm. completely... I was, I was, I, I can't even find the words to describe it. I was, I was, I, I couldn't believe that the credit, that, that the rejection wasn't about the story, but about me. Just came that, right to you. Love the story, but you're screwing it up. That was basically yeah, what yeah, they were they, saying. They, they, the writing isn't good enough. It's a great story, but the writing isn't good enough. It was, it was exactly what they said. Ugh. And so, and so I had a real, you know, it was a real kind of come to Jesus moment for me. I, um, you know, I, I remember sitting in a chair and my dog was looking at me in a really funny way, which kind of made me laugh a little bit. And uh, I went out that night, got really, really drunk and <laughs> woke up the next day with a really horrible hangover. And uh, while I was sitting there thinking about it, I, I had a huge insight, which was that I hadn't really been trying my fullest. That, you know, I'd spent all this time and all this money to write this book. And I had, in some ways, been, been phoning it in a little bit. You know, I I knew there were places when I when I read the manuscript that I could do better. There were huh. paragraphs I read, there were setups I read, there were sentences I read where I was like, "Yeah, this is pretty good." 
But I realized that what I had been unwilling to do was to put 100% of myself into it to do the absolute best fucking job I could and then have that rejected. So I, I, I had the reason they had rejected the book was because they were right. Because the, the writing wasn't, the writing was okay, but it wasn't something that a major New York literary agency is going to represent. It wasn't, it wasn't cutting edge, top notch writing. And you knew that you had more in the tank that you didn't, did you really didn't, you know, put the pedal to the metal, so to speak. So there was a party that was like, yeah, got it. I, I just get it. Like you could have been, you could have been collapsed and devastated by that. And you were initially, but then you realized, wait a second, this is a kick in the ass. Do better. Bring your best. Is that what you heard? Yeah, that, that's what I realized. And, and that was when, and then thing is, that's when I got really scared because that was, I realized I had enough money to live another 10 or so months if I really was careful. And uh, so I made the choice to start at the beginning with the very first sentence of the book and go through and, and not let a single sentence get past me that wasn't the best that I could do. So it was, it was full in, which meant that when someone read the book, it's like, I can't write any better than this. I, I can't do any better than I did in this book. And this is the best of me. It's the best I can do creatively. And, and to be actually in that place is, is terrifying for me. What's, what's at stake, though? Because we just heard what was terrifying about having someone say it's not good enough. But what, what, can you describe what was even more terrifying about stepping in and being like, this is it. This is the best I got. Well, for me, it's because any rejection, man, is like, there's, I can't tell myself, well, yeah, but it was just a biography, or this wasn't my story, or, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't really try all the way. So if I get another rejection, if the book sells horribly, um, you know, I can always kind of comfort myself by saying that, yeah, but this wasn't really the book. This wasn't, this wasn't the one that I really was going to put a hundred percent of myself into. I put 70% of myself into, but I'm waiting for the, for the, for the, for the next book to really throw myself into. You know what? This so, is huge because so many, so many of us are doing that in our lives. We're, we're, we're kind of waiting to give it our all, whether it's in our, in our careers or in our relationships or even through our own creative endeavors or parenting or whatever. Like there's somehow one day that's when we're going to really kick it in the ribs and, and give it our all. And, and I get it now. Like it's terrifying because if we give it our all and that's not good enough, then we've taken out the excuses that we've been kind of sitting on. Well, and, and more importantly, you've got nothing left. You know, it's like, it's like, what else can I do but my best? What else can I do but try my hardest? I, I, got, mm. I got nothing else to draw on but my best and my hardest. So if the criticism comes back then, if this, this isn't good enough, the writing isn't good enough, then what it means is that my dream of being a writer, that there's something flawed in that dream. I got to look real hard at my assumptions about me, about my life's work, about where I am, you know. Suddenly, suddenly it's, it's, it's really, I got to come face to face with myself and get real honest about how I view me and how I view the work I'm doing in the world. But does it, but that, uh, you know, I got to call bullshit too. And I can, I can completely put myself in there, but at the same time, it's like, do we really let other people decide if we are writers? Do we really let people, other people decide if we are an artist or whatever? Isn't it really up to you if you're a writer? Yes and no. I, I mean, it's up to me in, in a sense. So, you know, I, I can consider myself a writer with 300 rejection letters and no, <laughs> and no track record. But, but the truth is, am I a writer? 
I mean, if no one ever publishes me, you know, in a sense, yes. Like I would, I would say I concede your point. I think it's true, but there's another point that's also true. They're kind of both true. So yeah, it's true. Ultimately you make the call. You, you have to own it inside of you. You at the end of the day have to be the one that lives with any way that you define yourself. But at the same time, you know, if I say I'm a world-class painter and I don't paint or, or I paint very, very little, then I got to call bullshit on myself. Um, you know, the, the feedback that you get from the world is very important reflection on whether you're full of shit or whether you're actually living in integrity with who you say you are, who you want to be. So for me, I knew that like, if I, you know, being a writer was my biggest, deepest calling. It's who I, what I most identified with. And I was really afraid that the feedback, I already had 300 rejection letters. So the feedback was already saying, you know what? You're not a very good writer. Then I get explicit feedback that says, you're not a very good writer. So now I'm looking at the reality of, you know, well, what does this mean? Can I, can I really hold on to this dream or do I need to really be a little yeah, more self-critical? And yeah, the only way I, I could answer that was, well, I got to go all the way then. I, I there can be right. no more half steps. Okay. So you're going all the way. What's going on with your health at this point? Cause you're 10, 11, 12 months in at this point. Um, what's going on with your health? So yeah. The health thing was, you know, I, I was real lucky. I went to, uh, uh, after about four months, the symptoms in my legs were like numbness on the outsides of my legs um, began to go away. And then it went totally away. And I uh, went to a neurologist and you know, had an MRI done and things like that. And uh, you know, ended up with this kind of fuzzy diagnosis again, where they're kind of like, well, the, the, the numbness could have been MS. It might not have been MS. You have some brain lesions. Um, uh, in the corpus callosum, which are indicative of someone that would have MS, but nothing was really definitive, um, which is still where I stand to this day. So I haven't had any symptoms since then. Uh, I, you know, I changed my diet really radically. I did a lot of research. I went on a lot of supplements. Um, so, I, so I did a whole, I'm on a whole preventative care streak for it. Uh, but I've been symptom free since, since the summer of 2009. So. Okay, great. Great. All right. So now you're doubling down. You're going to really go for it now. Walk us, walk us from there. So, yeah. So, so then it's, you know, and then the writing got real intense because, because I knew when I, when I read anything that I wrote, you know, a paragraph, a page, a chapter, if it was good or not, if it was good enough or not. And so I held myself to a really strict standard and creatively I had to take a leap that I had been unwilling to make which was, this is someone else's life story. This is his life, his experiences, um, you know, his pain and pleasure. And I had been unwilling to speak for Junto's emotional state. You know, I mean, who am I to speak for him? Hmm. And what I realized as I went through the book that, that was, that's what was missing, was that this false modesty of not being willing to speak for him, which if I was going to write this story, I had to get into every scene everything that happened and I had to presume to speak for him. I had to put myself in those situations and really imagine what it must have been like. And knowing him as I do, imagine how he felt and reacted and be willing to take the risk of pissing him off, of getting it wrong, of, um, you know, and that, that was something that, that I hadn't seen before. And that was really missing in the book. 
And that's a huge risk again of just like, well, who the hell are you to tell me what I felt or who the hell are you weren't there? You don't know what's going on. So here's like another way of being called a fraud, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you talk to people, he's, you know, he's, he's a pretty forceful guy, you know? So, so it's like, you know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to have, have to have 50 conversations about, you know, what the fuck is the matter with you, you know, kind of a thing. So yeah, he's hit me with a stick. So I, <laughs> he doesn't just say things. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, <laughs> but, All right. So you, so you, so you, had, you really had to take another, another risk. Did you ever find yourself, Hey, I'm going to write what I think they want, or did you stick to what you knew you needed to write? No, the only way that I kind of wrote, about what people might want was I made sure not to presume that people knew anything about Buddhism or LSD or the counterculture or anything like that. So, so there I really was careful to explain things, but, but, um, otherwise, no, you know, it was for me, I knew if I could get into his head effectively, that the story would, would basically tell itself. That's cool because I can imagine after you after a letter like that and an experience like that, you're going to want to do everything you can to avoid that. So you're going to dismiss your own voice and try and imagine what they think they want. And for the guy out there that's listening, he's probably done that, whether it's with a woman or with his boss or whatever. He's contorting himself to present the version. This is what they want. This is the side of me they want to see. But you're sticking to your guns and you know who your audience is. So you're meeting them where they are but you're not abandoning your own voice as a writer and, and a storyteller. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's a great way to put it. And, 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 you know, it's interesting in my personal life during this whole process, you know, there, there were, there were so many parallels. Um, I was discovering about showing up just the way you described it, uh, you know, in full integrity with who I am, you know, not trying to speak at somebody and manipulate the situation so that it would have a nice turnout, but really seeing them where they are and really being in my integrity as a man when I was expressing myself to my partner or to my friends or to my community or whatever. So it, it became really kind of a, a meta practice in, in a lot of ways. Um, it, yeah, it kicked you in the ass that, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to show up this way in my writing, I'm gonna, it's kind of hard to then be full of shit out in the world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. And so you're going through, you're combing through it sentence by sentence. So you, did you resubmit it again to the same, to the same people or what happened then? So, yeah. So, um, so at nine months later, I'm, I'm done the book and, uh, well, it's funny things had begun to change then. So, um, I had, while I was working on the second draft been contacted by my what is now my publisher, they they came to a lecture that Junpo was giving, actually a guy named Manny Otto. And uh, and, and Manny, <clears throat> you know, basically pitched us afterwards. He gave us a really hard pitch. He explained that he understood the teaching, he understood Junpo, he thought, had seen samples of the writing on the web. And <clears throat> basically what he said was that we're your publisher. Even if you get an offer from HarperCollins, we're your publisher. And the reason is, is because we're a small press. We're going to keep the book as it is. We're going to, we're going to promote it in a way that honors what the story is about. And we're going to push it for two years. We're not going to, we're not going to push it for two months and then let it go and work on our next title. Hmm. And so you, I was for the first what was time that like life, to have, What was that like to just have somebody like embrace you and say, I've got your back and I want, I want to support you. I want to help you. 
Yeah, it's, it's fucking awesome. It's like my whole my whole life, my whole professional life, I've been banging on doors, cold calling, you know, facing rejection. And to have a to have a publisher come and say that even if you get if you get the writer's dream, you you land the elephant, you know, you you get Harper Collins is gonna back you. Here's why you should go with us. I mean that takes audacity to to, to make a statement like that. And it really intrigued me. And I'm not a fool. I, I went ahead and, and looked at other publishers. I, I was in some negotiations with some other publishers. But at the end of the day, when I looked at what was on the table and who I trusted the most, uh, I really trusted this publisher to really be in alignment with what I wanted to do with the book. How did you feel about the book? Is it, you know, now that you're able to talk to different publishers and you've already, you've really put your back into it, so to speak. How would you, how did you feel about the book versus where it was ten months before? Oh, it's it, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I, I mean, it's it's the best thing I've, I've ever done. Um, it's you know something opened up in me as I was going through the second time, and I was just able to turn phrases and access a level of skill as a writer <clears throat> that I'd never really accessed before. I was, uh, because what I would do is I would, you know, read a page I didn't like and I would just sit there if it took two days and work on that, work on that one page until it got, until it got to the place that I was comfortable. And then as I did that more and more, it became easier. And, uh, that kind of intersection of talent and training and skill and determination all kind of met in a really sweet spot. And so I was able to go through and, and uh, really basically rewrite the book. It's interesting because whether it was the page in front of you or it was the world kind of speaking back to you, the no wasn't necessarily a no. It was just more of a not yet. It's not ready yet. Did you, is that true for you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, yeah, it was, uh, again, it was, it was, I, I had been coasting a little bit, you know, I'm a good writer, but to, to take something that had been good and make it great to me, that was putting that all of myself into it, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I, I, well, I want to go back to the point of the no versus not yet that for many of us, whenever we get a no in the world, whether it's, you know, from anywhere in life of anything that we're doing, we'll, okay, I guess that's it. You know? And it's just like, no, you just stay at it, stay at the thing. You, you just, it's not ready yet. Keep working at it. Keep honing it. Um, uh, to me, that's like this big message here that you were called forward the best of you. It was like, yeah, this is, this is, this is all right, but you got more, you got more in the tank. So we want that. Don't give us this bullshit. We want the best stuff that you've got. Um, I just really appreciate that lesson because so many of us just take the no for what it is as a rejection and that we're not good enough and I shouldn't do that anymore. Yeah, uh, totally. And, and that's, you know, I, I spoke very quickly through it, but, but the, the, the night that I spent after the manuscript had been rejected was, was probably you know, one of the darkest nights of my life. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I really, because I really came face to face with just that. It was like, this is the big no. This is not just another no, because I'd gotten to so many no's, but this was a really big no. And it was that, you know, a real moment for me. Do I, do I just say, fuck it? You know, I still got, you know, 20 grand in the bank. Do, do I just say, fuck it, call Junpo and tell him, hey, you know, keep the manuscript. I'm not your guy. I apologize. You know, good luck finding finding the right guy. And part of me really wanted to do that. You know, like let's just let's just 
give up this dream of being a writer who is it was a real fun dream, it's real cute, you know, it's real adolescent though, you know, and, and you're a big boy, you're heading in the middle age, you know, with nothing. But this ridiculous dream, so so give it up, get real, go get a job, you know, settle it's down. Time to, blah, blah, it's time blah. to grow up. Yeah, it's time to yeah, grow so, up, Keith. So that's that story was real, real loud and and I couldn't just stop it. I had to go out and sit with it. And uh, and really face it, you know. And then the next day, decide that no, you know, this. I, I know I can do better. I know I can put more into it than this. Now, you weren't isolated during this process. You know, what was your world like? Were you getting support from others? Was this your own internal battle that no one else was aware of, or, or was this? Because I remember hearing about this. So, who had your back? Oh yeah, it's a great question. Great question. So yeah, the most you know probably. The, the the two most important backers that I had one was was my men's group that I have here in Boulder, which actually you used to uh, you used to run for us back in the day, right? Interestingly enough, but um, yeah, my my men's group, you know, when I went initially to sell my house, so Junko had given me the story, you know, I'm thinking I can do this, but it's going to take at least a year investment, you know. So I'm thinking of selling my house and investing the money into this dream. And I didn't want to make that decision by myself. That's a real big decision. Um, mm. So I went to my men's group and I, and I put it before them. And I think there were 12 guys in the group at the time, 11 or 12, I forget exactly. But they, uh, they uniformly gave me, unanimously gave me their blessing to go forward. And that feeling those guys have my back that like, you know, we believe in you. We believe you can do it and we'll hold you accountable to doing it. It was just huge. It was because it wasn't just the artist alone in the world trying to do his thing. It was, it was, I had real backing checking in twice a month, with these guys and uh, huge. And then the, the second big piece was my family. My family had my back too, which is really, really huge. Wow. It's just, you know, that's the thing is it's like no one can do it for you. You're going to have to be the one to do it, but it's nice to surround yourself with people that are going to call bullshit on you if you're full of shit or if you're delusional, but also that see the best in you and are going to kick your ass. They're like, yeah, we want the good stuff. Like we said, like, don't, don't give us this shit. We don't want to see a, a, a mediocre version of Keith out in the world. Yeah. Who knows how long we're on this planet, whether MS gets you or the, the, you know, the bus as you're crossing the street. So give us the good That's stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and 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 so yeah, the men's group was was huge for me, and then and the second part, like I said, with the family, that was big too because my my parents through my twenties hadn't really understood my dream and the sacrifices I was making, and there had been kind of there had been support but not understanding, and um, and with this book, they they were they fully understood what it was I was trying to do and they fully supported me, you know, and, and I mean support without qualification. And, you know, wow. I'd reached an age where I didn't think that matters. You know, I was like, I didn't really think that like I needed my parents' support. I'm a grown man. You know, I can make my own way in the world. But to have that, wow. You know, it was like, it's great to have though, right? You may not need it, but man, it's great to have, you know, and then, and then when the book came out and then my parents read it and you know, hearing them, you know, their genuine praise for it. It just, it just moved me to tears. You know what I mean? To have, again, the same thing, like, why well, don't, I don't feel like at 39 years old, I need my parents to be proud of me. But boy, when you hear it, it just, for me, it just, it just takes me on my knees every time. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. I'm so glad you have that because a lot of times our parents are the ones that want us to play it safe and be practical and they mean well, <laughs> they don't want us to be the starving artist and, you know, on the side of the street or whatever. 
but uh, it's it's great to have their support to say, yeah, let's go for it. We got you. We got your back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so the baby's out in the world, so to speak, this, I, I'm sitting here looking at my copy on my desk right now. For a lot of it, this is just the beginning, right? I mean, you, even though it was a two-year process to get this thing created, it's still, you know, what are you learning now that you're out there having to help spread the word about it? Yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's it's kind of a joke in publishing that writing is the easy part, you know. it's it's um, So, yeah, now it's it's about exposure, uh, you know, trying to trying to raise the profile of the book, uh, doing things like public readings. I have a I have a reading actually up in Vail uh, this coming Thursday, and um, so you end up you know you end up with this like intensely personal private thing. You know, you're spending six seven days a week by yourself, and then suddenly you have to turn around and become a cheerleader and take it out into the world. You know, and it's like this it's this kind of raw sensitive part of yourself that you. That you then walk out and 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 are, are encouraging people to buy and read, and so it's a real shift in energy for me to uh, to make that transition. And it's vulnerable. I mean, you, you all these yeah, levels yeah, of vulnerability. Yeah. It's yeah. like, hey, Keith, oh, Keith, do you want to play? Here's one level of vulnerability. Oh, now that you're fully committed, here's another level of vulnerability. And now that you're done, oh, you get to switch. You get to switch gears, and then you get to be even more vulnerable in the world. Is it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But it's right at this point in my life. It's like, how else do you want to live? Like, do you, do you really want to live anymore and not be vulnerable? You know, you're going to get to the end of your life and say, "Boy, I really wish I, you know, I wish I'd hid myself away a little bit more." You know, I, I just, I've never regretted <laughs> stepping into life fully uh, and being uncomfortable with just being alive. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. That's so cool. I, I can just imagine like the guy that's sitting there and he's sitting in front of the blank screen and he's getting ready to start his book and he starts to imagine this. Well, wait a second. <laughs> I'm going to have to go through all of these, you know, different levels of torture of vulnerability. Why would I even start? But what I'm getting from you is like, hell yeah, this is where I feel most alive. I mean, on one end, there's this artifact, there's the book, there's the story that you told, but on the other end, it's just your life experience and what you learned and how you connected with others and connected with yourself and just learned how to really, yeah, this is what I'm made of. That that is that more important than the book itself? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question, and and ultimately it is. You know, the process of writing is is always the process of self discovery. You know, anytime you spend that much time. You know, whether you're writing someone else's story or writing writing a work of fiction, uh, uh, it doesn't really matter. It's like there's so much introspection is required to really climb into the story in that depth that you learn so much about yourself and where you your buttons get pushed and where you're not showing up in your own life. And then to have to turn around and, and, and take this thing out into the world that's so sensitive, that's so personal, that's so emotional for you, and to really stand behind it is uh, is also a huge, huge act of, of courage in some ways, you know? Absolutely. Well, buddy, I'm so proud of you, man. I, I you know, been hearing about this book for years now and, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to write this book and I'll see you guys in three weeks and it'll be done. It's a, it's a long, <laughs> long walk to go through. And, um, and I was psyched to read it after the first chapter. I forgot that it, you know, I had your voice in my head for the first right, right. few pages. And then I was, I was gone and like Allison, my wife asked me, he's like, how is it? And I said, it's really good because I don't hear Keith anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not imagining Keith. I'm just absorbed. I'm just into the story. And I, that's when I knew you'd nailed it. 
because I wasn't I, otherwise I'd been like, oh, Keith, shut up and just blah, blah, blah. I would have had my criticisms, <laughs> but but I just got it completely absorbed in the story and loved it. So you, you nailed it, buddy. Cool, man. Thank you. It's, it, I, I can never hear that sort of reflection often enough. It, just, it feels really good to hear. So thank you. Well, and I think on the other side, you, you know, your story and what you went through, most of us, when we walk into a bookstore, we have no idea the bullshit that people had to go through to get that thing on the shelf or as you know, back when we used to go into record stores and see things or even films or whatever, we don't know the, the, the trials and tribulations that, the and rituals and, and initiations and all kinds of shit that people had to, had to go through to, to create that artifact. Um, and sometimes that's more valuable than what's in the pages or, or on the screen. So I'm glad that you gave us yeah. an insight into this process for you, because no matter if, if the guy's a writer or whatever, that this creative process applies to everything we do in our lives. I think there's a way that we can find a way to tap into that and no matter what we're doing. So thank without you. Any question. Yeah, without any question. I, I think the same principle applies you know, to, to parenting, to job, to career. How you show up with your friends? I, I mean, I really think that it's 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 a universal principle, you know. And and that 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 was one of the real big insights that I had from this process. This was all about writing a book, but at the end of the day, it had nothing to do with writing a book. It had everything to do with me showing up in my life. Here are the big takeaways from this talk with Keith Martin Smith. Number one. Many times, we only see the successful product of people's efforts. We don't have any clue how many times they were rejected or kicked to the curb. We have no idea how those painful experiences made the final product better. Keith received over 300 rejection letters before publishing his first book. And then he went on to write another. So bottom line, shift your relationship to rejection. No may simply mean not yet. Number two. If you're struggling with a big life decision, trying to figure out what you should do or how you should approach something, then try this. Imagine sitting down with an old stinky guy on his deathbed. It's years down the road and that old stinky guy is you. There you are, lying in your own filth, just a few moments away from the big finale. And imagine you get to ask this version of yourself what you should do about the challenge you're facing today. What would he say? What would he tell you about living a satisfying life? What would he have regrets about? When you're aware of your mortality, suddenly the mountain in front of you seems more like a small hill. So spend some time with this part of yourself, the guy on his deathbed, and you'll gain a whole new appreciation for what you have now while gaining insight on how you truly want to live. Number three, to avoid vulnerability, to protect ourselves, we often hold back whether it's in work, relationships, whatever matters most to us. Somehow, this gives us an escape hatch in case we're rejected. But here's the deal. By holding back and refusing to play fully, we're inviting the rejection we're working so hard to avoid. I'll say it again. By holding back and refusing to play full out, we're inviting the rejection we're working so hard to avoid. The folks who play full out are rewarded the most. They attract support from others. Doors open for them. The ones who are one foot in, one foot out, get what they're putting in, which is wishy-washy. It's lukewarm. So if you want something, own it. Don't hold back. Play full out. Number four, let go of this idea that one day you'll be all done with challenge. All of this stressful stuff will be over and you can just kick back. You'll be exonerated. You'll live in a utopia. Well, guess what? It's bullshit. This place doesn't exist. The closest you'll get to it is death. 
Holding on to this fantasy of exoneration creates suffering. Let it go. In the meantime, if you choose the path of growth, you'll be given greater challenges, more vulnerability, greater risk. And if this sounds like bad news, consider that these challenges are exactly where we feel most alive and most engaged. Like any video game, the more you progress, the faster and more aggressive the monsters become. In the game, we expect this to happen. We like it. Why? Because it keeps the game fresh. It keeps the game fun. Well, life isn't much different. But if you keep hoping that one day soon, you'll be free from risk, you'll be free from challenge, well, then life's a bitch. Number five, Keith had to write every word and every sentence in that book on his own. But that doesn't mean he was alone. When feeling vulnerable or scared, most guys have a tendency to hide out until the coast is clear. I know I do. But Keith didn't hide out. He shared what he was doing. He leaned on his men's group for support, challenge, and accountability. He had the guts to share his challenges with his family who had his back as well. Many of us are scared to share our challenges for fear of ridicule or rejection. But Keith, he stepped into his fear and the support of his men's group, family, and friends put the wind at his back. And so where do we find the book? How, how do we, The guy that's listening right now, he's, he wants to go check it out. Where can he get a copy of A Heart Blown Open? So it's on Amazon. Uh, it is also in most bookstores. And if anyone's interested, they can read excerpts off of my website. So there, there's a bunch of free excerpts on there. Uh, for anybody that wants to kind of get a taste and a feel of what the book's about. Okay. And what's the website that we go to? Uh, that's just my full name. So it's KeithMartinSmith.com. And I'm just going to say, screw that and go get the book because it's that good if you don't like it. <laughs> it really is a great book. So, uh, and I look forward to uh, hearing about a movie rights sometime soon because this is going to be a great film too. So, Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Thank you so much for coming on, man. This is a great story. It's inspiring. And, um, you know, even if I didn't know you, I would want to have this story told to the guy. So I, I'm just glad that I do know you. I'm proud of you, buddy. And, and thanks for sharing, man. Cool. Cool. Thanks, man. It was great being on here and talking with you. And, you know, I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. It's it's the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of um, coaching that you give men that allowed me to go into this very thing. So it's it's very, you know, very serendipitous to, to be talking to you about this. It's directly related. So thank you very much. There's so much more to The New Man than these interviews. So visit thenewmanpodcast.com and join the mailing list so you never miss another update. Thanks for listening.